All right, Mark chapter 3, and we're down through uh, really verse 19. We saw last time the uh, issues here of where he's, uh, the Lord has cho chosen the 12 apostles. And uh, again, Mark is uh, very quick here. We're in chapter 3, and we're already into, well, where Matthew 10 would be and Luke 6 and so forth. We're already there. We're already going. We're moving. And uh, Mark uh, comes, uh, actually Mark has made several quick advancements here in the life of Christ. If you look there at verse 6 of chapter 3, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So Mark's already moved to, to the plan for them to destroy him, to kill him. Uh, he, Mark's, he got there quickly. Uh, he's come to the conclusion early in Mark that Christ has been rejected and he's headed for the cross, even though Mark doesn't know it's the cross, we do. But we know that in chapter 2, really this started back in chapter 2 where he was healing some people. Uh, chapter 2, like verse 17 um, where they talk about we don't need a Savior, you know, and he says, well, I didn't come. Uh, to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, and they pull that on him. And then in uh, verse 24, we got the Sabbath day question coming up. So Mark immediately, again, chapter 3, they're ready to kill him, but we don't get to that really till chapter 8, where the details feather out. But Mark, he has set the tone immediately here that Jesus Christ has came into his own, and his own has received and received him not. So the, the, the passages here, the progress that we're going, uh, Mark doesn't get into the big discourses that Jesus uh, does. If you think about Matthew 10, where we've been, Matthew 10 and Luke 6, um, those are, if you think about Matthew 10, that the, the commissioning of the apostles there by the Lord, it, he takes up like 20-something, 23, 24 verses in this big discourse that the Lord talks and he goes through with them. Mark just, boom, two, three, four verses here, they're done. They're set and they're going. And actually, if you were to take out of Matthew all of the discourse, you've got, the, all, you've got three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. You've got... Uh, the, the Olivet Discourses, and if you were to remove all that, literally Matthew would be shorter than Mark. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Mark doesn't do that. Mark portrays the Lord as the servant, and so we don't care what the servant says. We don't care how the servant feels. That's Matthew. We care what the king says. Luke, here's the man. Here's how he feels. But in Mark, the servant, we, not, we need to see him do, and his activity and that's why the two great words in mark is that word and and immediately so immediately he does this and then he does this so you've got this constant moving of events here and again we we came down in verse 13 last time uh, he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him uh, whom he would and they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, 
and that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And that's it. Nothing about don't take a purse and you're not going to wear out and this and that and all this stuff like Matthew 10, Luke 6. He just says, here they are. We're commissioning them. We're going to give them the, the, uh, the, um, the powers of the kingdom, the issue of healing the, the disease and casting out the unclean spirits, dealing with those two great pictures and types that were established there, and off we're going. So Luke does it. I, I, he, I'm sorry, Mark here, he, he talks about Peter and, and James and John and Andrew, and he names the guys, verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Now, you have to rem- think about this. In verse 6, they are trying, they're going to, they, they, the, the, the Pharisees take counsel with their enemies, their arch enemies, the Herodians. The political part of the uh, leadership of the nation of Israel. And they're trying to destroy him. They're trying to kill him. So what does he do? Verse 7. Jesus, he withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. So he withdraws himself from the apostate leaders of the nation. And yet what happens? And a great multitude from Galilee followed him from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon. And a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. So he withdraws himself from the leadership of the the apostate nation. And he's going to focus in now on the leadership of the little flock, the 12 apostles. And he gathers them out from that apostate nation. And he's kind of bringing them out. He begins to train them, really, because he knows what's coming. Mark 8, they're going to kill me. I'm going to Jerusalem to die, guys, and the third day I'll be resurrected. They don't believe him. They don't, but he's getting them ready. Now, in verse 19, he's back in town. He goes outside of the city, gets away from the apostate leaders. He's in Capernaum here, and he gets over. The great, the multitudes come to him so much so that, you know, <laughs> he's healing many. He's doing and so forth. So. He isn't neglecting the masses. He's turning away from the leaders, the apostate, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and so forth. He's dealing with the masses, and yet he, again, he's going to now move into the little flock. Now, in verse 19, he's chosen the 12. Again, the first guy in the list is always Peter. The last guy is always Judas Iscariot. And last time we broke down the breakup here. And he's always last because he's going to eventually be replaced, Acts 1, by Matthias. They go into a house. So he withdraws himself, by the way, verse 12, and straightway charged them that they should not make him known. Don't, don't make me known. He's, he's withdrawing himself. From the, from the multitudes, from, from the leaders. Now, that multitude, verse 13, and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would call. And they, so now, so he's in town, he withdraws himself, he goes up into a mountain. And again, he's 
outside of the visible ministry to the multitudes. He withdraws to the little flock to get them set up and establish the 12 and so forth. And now he's back in the town, back in a house, and he's going to deal with the multitudes here. Verse 20, and the multitude cometh to together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So the multitudes come. And again, the multitudes are from verse 7 and 8, that whole territory. Idumea is south of the Dead Sea. Tyre and Sidon, they're outside. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. All of Jerusalem is coming to him now. The people are ready. The people are there. The leaders aren't. They're over here, you know, all upset and mad at him. So he's got this whole, this multitude, verse 20, cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So there's a great press there. The people are responding positively to what's going on while the leaders are rejecting him. Rather than responding positively, they reject him. So he's going to, in verse 21, or verse 22 and following, he's going to illustrate this out to everyone. But notice verse 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now, <laughs> here's his friends. Now, by, now, if you cast an eye over to verse 31... There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. So there's his family's going to come. But notice what his friends do. They hear about all that's going on. They come to him. He can't eat, the end of verse 20, as much eat bread. He's, minist he's being pressed here. He's ministering to them. He's taking care of the masses. And really, when you see that, you see that servant heart of the Lord, that selflessness of the Lord in the midst of all of the activity that's going on around him, he continues to minister to the multitude. He continues to minister along and to provide for them. He doesn't back down. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't say, no more, I need a break. Does that selfless service of that servant of who he is. So the friends see it, and what do they say? He's beside, he's crazy. He's beside himself. He's mad. He, he's, he's, he's nuts. Look at this guy. Now look at verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. You see, his enemies say he's got a he's he's uh, he's got a devil. His friends say this he's nuts, he's crazy. So in the midst of, I mean, you think about this. His friends are looking at him, going, "You're you're not, you're a lunatic, man, doing this." And his enemies they think he's got a devil. And again, the scribes. Uh, which came the scribe, the Pharisees here, the religious, the scribes are the more uh, intellectual guys. Okay, they're more into the into the jot and the tittles and all the little finite details. And yet, 
they, <laughs> it's interesting here what they're going to do. If you look at verse uh, 22, they don't, they don't question or deny the fact that he's doing miracles. Okay? They don't say he's a liar, he's not doing what he said. They just contribute it to satanic activity. Okay? You think about, you, you, you guys know Benny Hinn when he was popular, you know? I had a lady that lived down the street from us, and she was taking her mom to Mexico City so she could be there, and she could get healed and feel the breeze and all this stuff. And she came back and said, how'd it go? She goes, I don't know, mom's still sick. Well, hello, there's a reason, okay? But see, the thing is, is there were, he had written a book about some of his people that had been healed, and someone like Nightline or 2020 or somebody went and found them all, and none of them were healed. Actually, they were still in the same condition, if not worse. When you talk about the Lord healing, it's top to bottom, toe to top, complete, instantly, no rehab, no second, it's done. Immediately, the guy gets up and walks. So the interesting thing here is the Pharisees are not denying he, that what he's doing isn't real. They're saying it's real, it's just of the devil. This is a satanic ploy. Now, you have to understand that if they could have pointed out that what he, the miracles he's doing were fake, they'd have been screaming that at the top of their lungs, just like they, they did with Benny Hinn, okay? And, and, and not just him, but others as well. Uh, the guy on 2020 caught uh, Popoff with a little transistor in his, radio, in his ear, and his wife's backstage reading the welcome cards off. To we got a guy in the front row. His name's Paul, and he's got sick. Of, he's sick in the head. Why? Because you filled out a welcome card, and they know everything about you. So, and he's sitting there going, I, "Is there a Paul in the room?" You know, it, you know all that. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> there is a Paul in the room right there. But I'm see, I'm sick in the head. okay, you're not sick in the head. Well, you do follow L.A., so we're gonna worry about that. You know. Anyway, how about those Braves, right? Yeah, okay. But the thing is, is if they could have said what he was doing was fake, they would have been hammering that home. But they're not. Rather, they're looking at it saying, no, he's of Beelzebub, he's of the devil. So when Jesus does these miracles here, it's not phony. Otherwise, his enemies would have jumped all over him. Okay, so really, this is in a way a validation of his miracle, the miracle aspect of his earthly ministry. He's doing this everywhere he goes. It's not just one or two here or there. It's everywhere he goes. So as he's doing this, the Lord's doing this, his enemies coming up, and they're, they're like, they're not saying he's not doing it. They're not, you know, they're not out there trying to, to the op they're not validating this by saying he's not doing this. Rather, they're just saying, you know what? We know what he's, really what they're doing is they're, rec they're validating the truth of what he's doing. He is healing. He is casting out devils. So they're going to make a charge against him here about being Beelzebub, 
And, and the charge here about him having the devil and, and so forth, they're going to lay that in. Um, by the way, verse 31, his family, they show up, verse 31 to 35. I didn't say this a minute ago. The reason they show up in verse 31, he talks, uh, talks about his friends in verse 21. He's going to talk about them again in verse 31 and following. Is the, well, the implication is that they had to get there. They're out of town. They're in Nazareth, his, brethren, his brothers and his mother. So they got to get to Capernaum. So it takes a little time, okay? I didn't say that a minute ago, but the, again, they're... That, but the point is, with Mark, is they're not the issue. The issue, the immediate issue, are these scribes, these Pharisees, as they're beginning to, to attack him again. So Mark deals with them first, and then when they show up, he'll deal with them. Do you follow that? So the friends issue, verse 21, he just mentions them. Verse 31, the fought there. And, and uh, ver to verse 35, he just kind of talks about them. Now, when we get in there, we'll talk about them. But in, in the immediate issue is this cry that he is Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils cast he out devils. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. That's what the, the name means. Now, it's the Lord of the Flies in that it's the filth that draws the fly, okay? Um, so, it, Beelzebub is one of Satan's names. So it isn't that he's a fly. It's the filth, the garbage that brings the flies out. And what they're saying here is, is he's literally under the control. Two charges in the verse. He's literally under the control of the devil himself. Not under the control of a sub-devil or low-level low guy, but really he's just under the, he's really being possessed by Satan himself. So this first charge is really about who he is. Who is, who's in control here? What's really going on? So he's possessed by Satan, and then the second charge there, and by the prince of the devil cast he out. The, the second charge is, when he's casting out devils, what he's really doing is that his activity is really part of the program of Satan. He's really, what he's doing is, is see, Satan's program is to make something of himself. When Satan says in Isaiah 14, I will be like the most, that's promoting himself. So Christ isn't doing these things because of his compassion and his love for people. He's doing it so he can promote himself. So he can get the adelaides and the accolades and the pats on the back. So he's literally, when he says there, and by the prince of the devils cast he out devils, he's not taught, they're not, they are saying he's not doing this from sympathy and compassion and wanting to take care of. He's doing this so he gets all the notoriety, okay? All the recognition. So, again, what this shows in the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel, the apostate nation, is what are they not understanding? They're not understanding Satan. 
They're not understanding the satanic policy of evil against themselves. They're not getting how Satan works and how he operates here. They look over, they see the Lord doing, and they say, well, he's under the possession of the devil, so his activity is satanic in, in who's in charge. And then he's doing it not to help people, but to just exalt himself. And literally, when the Lord answers them now in verse 23, he's going to, I don't know, I call it the Denozo slap, if you ever watch NCIS with those guys, and just hits him on the back of the head. <laughs> the Lord just reaches up, because what he's going to do here in his answer is he's going to answer the second charge first, which is he's doing this under Satan's program, which is to exalt the creature, and then he's going to answer the first one. So he says, verse 23, And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, think about that. What is the Lord saying here? Don't you... What you just said in verse 21 is just ridiculous. Why, how can Satan cast out? Why would Satan do this? Why would Satan cast out Satan? See, he's, he's getting them to, you don't understand how Satan works here. Satan isn't casting out himself. He's not going to do that. And, and actually, this is kind of obvious. It's one of those, uh, I was listening to, you guys know who Bill Ingvall is, the comedian, Jeff Foxworthy, and he does the here's your sign, you know? And uh, he, he's got a flat tire on the side of the road, and the guy pulls over and says, hey, you got a flat? He goes, nope, the other three just swelled right up. Here's your sign, you know, obvious, you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of what the Lord's doing here with them. The, the Lord is a he's great sense of humor and a, and a lot of sarcasm sometimes. But notice verse 24. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. It's kind of common sense here, guys. If I'm trying to exalt myself by in everything I'm doing here, then you really don't understand what's going on. And actually, you've been deceived. Because that isn't how Satan operates. And it's blatantly obvious here. You see, they... When they make their statement in verse 22, it's clear that they don't understand that they themselves are captive by the satanic policy of evil. They are now captives. And that's the deception here. And that's what's happening. So the second charge, when they say, you're doing this in part of Satan, he's like, no. Why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? By the way, verse 25, of how house be divided against itself, the house cannot stand. That's a great verse you hear politicians throw around. 
You hear Abraham Lincoln throw it around. You know, he's the one that made that popular back in the day, according to the Internet, you know, and all that good stuff. Now, he did, he's the one that made that verse popular, but really, what's the context? He's, not, he's talking about Satan and the activity. So now he's going to focus in on the, the, the first answer about what he's doing here and their misunderstanding about what's really going on. Again, they don't get, they don't understand, they're not aware of the tactics of Satan. Verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Now he's answering the charge that he is under that he has a devil, okay? Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemes wherewith so uh, wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said. He hath an unclean spirit. When they said, you got a devil, you're of the devil, they don't understand who he is, the Lord is, and they sure don't understand the tactics of the adversary. So when he answers them here in verse 27, again, there's things that are going on here. They were bound. If you look there at verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods. They were bound in satanic captivity and literally the Lord is going to come in here and say, listen, the strong man that's got you is the adversary, is Satan. And I'm going to be stronger than he and rescue you. That's why in chapter 1, what's he, what's he been preaching? He comes along, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What's he saying? Hey, guys, it's time. Luke 8, verse 1, over there when we were there, he's preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom. He comes in, he's doing the miracles, because they've missed who he is. He says, wait a second, guys. I've come in here. I've been healing the sick. I've been casting out the devils. I've been doing all this as that picture, as that testimony of what I've been saying about who I am and what's at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the miracles are literally just a picture, a type of what is being accomplished, what's going to be accomplished in the kingdom, where their sins are taken away, there's no more sickness, there's no more crying, there's no, all of that is gone, all the disease is gone. And oh, by the way, guess who else is taken away? The adversary, Satan's taken away. He's cast off out into the lake of fire. That's... That's why the reference in verse 24 about, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, 
the kingdom cannot stand. Why? Because the issue is the Lord is saying, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm here to rescue you. And you're thinking, I belong to the devil. So who are, what are they missing? They're missing, obviously, how the adversary works, but they're missing him. And when he says in verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Who are his house? Who are his? He's talking about Israel. That's who he's got. And they are held captive. And Satan, literally, he has, he has a claim He's claiming Israel as his own house. Spoil them. Take them away. And that's literally what the Lord is here to do. That's why the casting out of the demons and the unclean spirits and the devils and all that is so critical. Satan's holding them in captivity. He's holding them uh, and claiming them as his own. And Christ has come to literally liberate them. But first, what does he have to do? Bind Satan. He literally has to uh, destroy Satan, liberate Israel from the clutches that he has. That's why in the five books of Psalms, he's got those five titles. One of them is Deliverer and Avenger. It's one thing to, to just deliver people, but it's another to wipe that enemy all out. And that's the avenger part that the Lord has done. So when he, in verse 23 here, and he called unto them and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? You know, he, he's, he calls them together. He calls the scribes together. He calls the, the uh, leadership of Israel and notice in verse 23, he speaks to them in parables. And that's a fascinating thing there because about the parables. And in Mark, here's the first time the issue of parables come up and is introduced. And it's important to really understand why Jesus spoke in parables. Okay? So if you drop down to chapter 4 real quick, just to kind of give you a, a what's coming look, Verse 1, and he began to, to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in a ship, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, and off he went. So he's going to begin to teach in parables. So the question then is, why does he do this? Now, what the average thought in Christianity is, is that the Lord teaches in, that the Lord was just a great storyteller, and he used parables to make things clear to everyone so everyone could understand. The problem with that is that's the opposite of what the Lord says in the scripture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, here's mainline Christianity, and they're, oh, he's a great storyteller. Everybody can understand it. But yet, if you look over at verse 9, 
He said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. After the parable of the sower, which is what he's going to give them there, is over, he says, listen, let them that, hear, that have the ear to hear, let them hear this. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables they pull him aside they hear the doctrine you know he's going to tell them the doctrine there in the end of verse 2 things in his doctrine talk about the sower and they say okay Lord verse 10 what does this mean (laughs) verse 11 it's to who to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom but to them that are without now who would that be That's the apostate Israel, Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. Verse 12, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. That he start come back with me to Matthew 13. He begins to teach in parables. So that there are some folks that won't get, won't understand what he's talking about, while the believing remnant, the little flock, they do get it, they do understand, and they move on. If you look at Matthew 13, which is where he has the parable of the sower in Matthew, Matthew, verse 10, the disciples came and spake unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. Verse 13, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And that's, go back to Mark, that's literally what's happening. He's going to talk and teach And he starts using parables. So back up here in verse 23, what's he doing? He's giving them a parable here about kingdom divided, kingdoms can't stand, house divided, house can't stand. And they're like, they're not getting it. They're drawing a blank. And what's going to happen here is he's he's literally hardening their hearts, if you will. In Proverbs 29 Great verse. I, a lot of talk here. I was reading online about hardening of hearts and stuff. It, Proverbs 29, verse 1, he says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Often reproved hardeneth his neck. Often, the word of God comes in. They, they're here, back here in Mark 3, they're hearing the word. They're hearing the word. They're hearing the word. But what are they not doing? They're not responding positively to the word. Here's the Lord himself. The word was made flesh and dwelt among There he is. They hear God's word. They are responding negatively. The, the, a great definition of faith. I know everybody goes to Hebrews 11, 1. But that's really not a definition of faith. That's what faith does. 
Faith is a positive response to the Word of God. When Paul says in Romans 10, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, you hear the Word and then you respond positively to the Word. If you don't, over time, what's going to happen? You're going to harden your heart. And, you're going to come, and, and that hardening of a heart comes from a refusal to respond positively to the Word of God, to obey the Word. So they be, they're beginning to harden their hearts here. And they're going to, they're going to begin to argue with him. And they're going to begin to, to reject what he's been teaching them. So back in Mark 3, in verse 23, when Jesus deals with them, he's dealing with them in the parables issue uh, really on the basis of them rejecting the word of God. And he does it here in two parables. The house divided issue and then the issue of the strong man. And he does it because they have rejected the message all along here. They haven't denied the miracle events happening, but they're, they're denying what those miracle events represent to who is he? Isaiah, the prophet, say, hey, when the Messiah comes, what's he going to do? He's going to heal the lamb. The blind are going to see. The, the dumb are going to speak. Everything, here is who he is, Isaiah 9. Boom, right there. And he's doing that, and they're, doing, they're saying, what? He's not. He's not. He's just another guy. Actually, you know what? He's of the devil. And they're missing it. Then when you come back into three here, by the way, that's why in 31 to 35 you see his natural family show up. His natural family comes. And we'll get into this part next time. When he does this and Mark mentions them, by the way, so does Matthew, so does Luke. What the Lord is saying here is my family is not the natural family over here in Israel. The Phar what did the Pharisees say? We have Abraham as our father. What did the Lord say? I can make those rocks the descendants of Abraham. Who is your father? The devil. You're just white sepulchers. You just got an outward appearance of the right, but you're really of the devil. You see, they, the family is the one who's going to be doing the will of the father. If you look there at verse 34, and he looked around about on them which sat about him and said, Behold my mother and my brethren. When we study this out next time, there's going to be a shift there. He's looking at, here is Israel, mother, and little flock, my brethren. That's why on the cross there, one of the seven sayings, the Lord looks at John and says, uh, and to Mary, Mary, behold, you know, mother, son, son, mother, Why? John represents the little flock. Mary represents that nation of Israel. And the little flock is going to take care of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is to take care of the little flock. And there to be a, this coming together. And he's literally doing that. It's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. And that's really where the Lord's getting at with these guys. Because they have, they, there's that spiritual component that needs to be addressed. Uh, hold on here. Look at John 1. When we went through John, John 1, verse 11 and 12, the 
the theme of the book of John. Here, the, here's, here it is in two verses. Really, the theme of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is in these two verses. John 1.11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's exactly what we've been talking about with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders. But as many as received him. So there are people within the nation that do what? Receive him, believe him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? Of God. There's a spiritual component that the Lord is going to begin to introduce to the nation of Israel. It's not enough to be descendants of Abraham, but you also have to have this new birth issue. Being born again is what he's going to do and call it in John 3 and come back here to Mark 3. So it's not enough to be this. You've also got to have the spiritual component. And when he looks at the Pharisees, they're rejecting that spiritual component. It is the Lord that says, hey, Moses said don't commit adultery. The activity, the actions. I'm going to tell you, if you think it and it's in your heart, what have you done? You've done the deed. See. So now the Lord is moving it from a physical descendancy thing now to a spiritual thing, a thing of the heart. And that's what he's doing in verse 27 about the strong man. Come back to uh, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. And just talk here a little bit about the strong man issue. <clears throat> because the strong man and the bringing up of the strong man in the parable is a reference back here to Jeremiah 31. If anybody ever asks you where is the New Testament and the Old Testament, you tell them Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 because there's the new covenant. Okay, and it's, made, he, he, it's a great passage about the new covenant that he's making with the house of Israel. And uh, really we need to read the whole chapter because the whole, the, the whole chapter is about the people who he's going to make the new covenant with as they sit in a very desperate spiritual condition. And then ultimately in the, with the kingdom, his second coming and then into the kingdom, he establishes the new covenant. But we're going to look, if you will, at verse number 10. If you start in verse 1. At the same time, saith the Lord, Will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Isn't that interesting? Ultimately, what's going to happen? He's going to be their God, and they're going to be his people. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Now, Israel is scattered, Leviticus 26, underneath that fifth course of judgment. Okay? That fifth course of judgment begins with the Babylonian captivity, where they are taken underneath Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar literally sacks the city three times. On the third time is when he takes Daniel, and you get the book of Daniel and everything. But So they're scattered abroad underneath Gentile rule. 
One day, what is the Lord going to do? He's going to go gather them back in. When you read in Acts 8 about Israel being scattered, James 1, 1, to the 12 tribes, scattered. There's, it's fine. Uh, First Peter, I think it's First Peter 1 or Second Peter 1, when he talks to about the strangers which are at Pontius and, and all that stuff, they're strangers. Why? They're scattered. That's their condition. There's nothing new here. Verse 11. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. He, he did what? He redeemed, he ransomed them from somebody that was stronger than they were. Jacob, Israel, they can't get out from underneath satanic bondage, captivity. They are under Gentile rule. Who owns the Gentiles? Satan does. They can't get away from it. They can't rescue themselves. That the, the, they are under the satanic control. They're among the Gentiles. That's verse 10. He, they're out there among the nations. But one day, what's the Lord say he's going to do? I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to ransom you. And Satan has Israel in his clutches, in his grip. Israel can't get away. They can't get out from underneath that satanic captivity. So God says, Jehovah says... I'm going to set you free. I'm going to do it for you. Come over to Isaiah 49. Now think about that. He says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to rescue you, redeem you from the strong man. I'm going to come in and bind him. And he's not going to get away. And I'm going to take care of you. Now, Isaiah 49 is talking about the kingdom and what Christ, what Jehovah, what the Lord's going to do for Israel in the kingdom. And literally in Isaiah 49, we, we learn how Israel got into satanic captivity, but then also now how they're going to get out of it. Now, just run to verse 23. Okay? Isaiah 49 in verse 23. And kings shall be thy nurse. Now again, this is what he's talking about. Israel. He's talking to Israel here, and here's their hope. Here's what's going to happen to them in the kingdom. The kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and look up the dust of thy feet, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. It's very fascinating. They're what? Waiting for him. If you endure to the end in Israel's program, what's going to happen? You're going to get rescued. You're going to get saved. Okay? Again, that word saved trips up a lot of people. Salvation. That just means to be rescued from peril or danger. And everybody goes, oh, you got to get, you know, they're justification. Now, justification's different. <laughs> Okay, you know, what's going to happen here? They're going to get there. Now watch verse 24. 
What did he say in verse 23? If you're with me, you wait for me, you trust me, what's going to happen? You're going to run and rule over everybody. The kings and the queens are going to come, bow down. All those Gentile nations out there are going to come and do what I told you from Abraham down that was going to happen to you. Now watch verse 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? There's an objection to what he just said in verse 23. The adversary stands up, the strong man, the guy that's got them in his clutches, and he says, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. They are, notice, shall the prey. Israel's the prey. Satan has gone after them. He's hunted them down. Why? He knows who they are. They're God's people. Make them useless. Make them not worthy to be the royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests. Make them not be who they're supposed to be. Be taken from the what? The mighty, the strong man. They're in satanic captivity. He's got them. He's hunted them down, killed them, bagged them, trophied them, put them on his wall. They're his. And then he says, or the lawful captive. Law, Satan looks, says and says, listen, those people have broken your covenant. They broke the law. They broke the agreement that Jehovah, you had with them. They've broken Leviticus 26. They've broken Deuteronomy 28 and 20. They are mine legally. They're mine. Think about that. They're in the fifth course of judgment. They didn't hearken. They've rejected. They are mine. You know, you go down and if you do what I ask you to do and trust me, I'll bless you. And if you don't, I'm going to curse you. The curse bless thing. If and then. They've, they're legally, they are lawfully captive because they have broken the covenant. So what is Satan doing here? He looks at them and says, wait, he looks at God, Jehovah, and says, hang on. They belong to me, legally. They have broken your word. And if you, and you can't say any way, otherwise your word is not true. You see, Satan thinks he's got him over a barrel here. Now watch verse 25. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. You know what God's saying there? Doesn't matter that they're lawfully yours, doesn't matter that they're in your captivity. I am going to get them free of that situation. Satan says, no, no, you're not. They belong to me. <laughs> See, I got the rules right here. They broke them. Verse 26, and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, now watch, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Three of the five titles given to the Lord. God says, 
think about this. God says, I'm going to rescue them. Satan says, no, you're not. God says, yes, I am. Watch me. And he's referring to the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan didn't understand how God is going to be able to take them, Israel, from him. He didn't understand the ramifications of Calvary. That's what he's not getting here. He doesn't understand that the cross was going to be the instrument that allowed the Jehovah to free the captives. Because what does Cal- Hold on to here. Look over at Colossians. Look at Colossians 2. Think about what Calvary accomplished. Now, again, the events of Calvary have been talked about and have been prophesied since Genesis 3, 15. But what they mean wasn't revealed. That was part of the secret message given to the Apostle Paul to then be revealed. Look at Colossians 2, 14. What does Calvary do? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What did Calvary do? It took away the hand, the law. It, it satisfied the law's requirement. That when you send, you needed what? The shedding of blood to cover it. Now watch verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, spoiled. What did he do to the, now go back to Isaiah 49. What did he do? He spoils the strong man. He bound him up. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 there, he says, hey, you know, we speak the truth. Uh, I just had it. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known the hidden wisdom, what Calvary meant, the meaning behind it, they would have never crucified the Lord. But Satan doesn't understand that. He doesn't get it. That was kept secret. That's why David would sit there and after committing the sin with Bathsheba, he's ready to die because adultery and murder is, even for the king, it's death according to the book. And Nathan comes to him and tells him he's got to do A, B, and C, and David does it. And then Nathan looks at him and says, hey, by the way, the Lord says you're forgiven. David doesn't understand how or why or on what basis. He just knows what? That he, the Lord, yeah, Romans 4. <laughs> it's, it's, we're, we're good right now. Now, look, look at Isaiah 49. Notice there in verse number 25, toward the end there, where he says, For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee. Look, if you will, over at chapter 50 in verse 8. Draw a line across the pair there. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. 
Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Now, the context of 50 verse 8 is 50 verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That's Calvary. Those are the events leading up to the, the cross. By the way, verse 6 is the only way you know that they plucked off his hair. Okay, it's right there. It's nowhere, nowhere else. So the events of the cross is... So the contending of the, with the stronger man, the stronger... That's why, back in... I'll go back to Mark 3. The strong man has them. But what does he say in verse 27? If you want to defeat the strong man and spoil him, you got to do what with him? you got to bind him. you got to defeat him. And the event that defeats the adversary is, the, is Calvary, the cross. Satan couldn't figure that, didn't know that. He didn't, under, he didn't get that. Why? It's part of the secret message. So the strong man here has Israel. And Jesus Christ basically is just saying, I'm stronger than they are, and I'm going to take all, all this away from you. And uh, I'm going to do it. So I'm not working for him or with him. I've come to take all that he's trying to get away from him, or actually all that he has away from him. Now, notice verse 28. Oh, time to quit, but we've got to get this done. 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the, uh, unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Now, you'll notice, verse 28, all sins... Okay, the sins here are the transgressions of the law. How was, how was Satan able to hold them captive? They broke the law. They disobeyed the covenants. All right, what, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be forgiven. Okay, verse 29, now we have what is called a lot, the unpardonable sin. But if you blaspheme against who? The Holy Ghost. Guess what? You can't be forgiven. Rather, you have eternal damnation. And verse 30, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Now, the counter... The comparative passage to this that's really clear is Matthew 12, verse 31 to 32, where he says um, the, the same thing, really. He just says it a little different than Mark. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. By the way, he says that on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he turned the mur his murder to manslaughter. In Acts, Peter's going to turn it from manslaughter back to murder. Because they did. 
But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So all sins, transgressing the law, you're speaking against the Lord, it'll be forgiven you. But yet, if you go back here to Mark 3, in verse 30, because they said he hath a what? An unclean spirit. Now, who's working in the Lord? The spirit is. So what are they done? They've literally here blasphemed the Spirit as well. They're going to blaspheme the whole, they're going to blaspheme the Son, but the Holy Spirit's working in him, and they're going to get him as well. Now that's why when you come into to the book of Acts, and you come over to Acts chapter 7, and you see, again, them do this, they don't. They stumble, but they don't fall. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in an Acts, they're going to fall. And in Acts 7, you've got the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen, by the way, if you think about this, those who work against, speak against the Lord, say that he's got an unclean spirit in him, they have identified themselves as the unbelief as unbelieving Israel they have identified themselves as unbelievers again that's why on the cross he says father forgive them for they what no not what they do there's some ignorance here Stephen if if you look here at acts 6 look at verse 15 Stephen and, and all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, angels, they bring the message from God. They're, okay? So in chapter 7, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost, stands up and he gives a word from God and he gives a brief history again, of Israel, but he says, listen, when Moses came the first time, you rejected him. The second time, he delivered you. When Joseph came, first time rejected, second time delivered you. When the Lord came, first time rejected, second time, he's going to judge you. <laughs> and they don't like that. And they get a little upset with him. And they work that thing down. I mean, he's working them over. By the way, if you you're in, are you in seven? This is. I'm, we're going to take a minute here. Look at verse thirty. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. Okay. Now look over at verse forty-three or down to forty-three. Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them. Now, what sits on the flag for Israel? They call it the star of David. It isn't. It's the star of Moloch here. It's this guy. In Scripture, the national symbol for Israel is the burning bush. See how they got... He, he goes, hey, he spoke to Bernie, and then, but you guys are over here under the wrong, you're following the wrong God. You're in the little R, not the big R. You're in the little rock, not the big rock. See, he's nailing them. Verse 51. 
Watch him just put the lid on these guys. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Uncircumcised. Is that a good thing in Israel's program or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Genesis 17 lays it out. If you're uncircumcised, you are cut off from God. You are cut. So what has he just called them? He called them heathen. He called them unbelievers. He called them, you guys have rejected God's word, and now you're in the same position of that of a Gentile. And he's talking to the religious leaders of the nation. And they are literally hearing the word of God, the spirit of God, talk to them through that little flock, through Stephen here. And he is just nailing their spiritual condition. And they are in, well, Mark 3, they're set at eternal damnation. <laughs> it's coming your way. So how do they respond? With love and kisses and hugs and repent? No way, man. They, you know, which of the prophets, verse 52, have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who hath received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, Notice that. They kill the father when they killed John the Baptist. They killed the son when they killed the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they're going to kill the Holy Ghost in the stoning of Stephen. Three strikes and you're out. But notice Stephen. He looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open." and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at, the saw, at, at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Quickly there, when they stone him, first of all, when Stephen looks into heaven and sees them, in Acts chapter 2, he says, sit until I make your enemies your footstool. He's standing now to make his enemies his footstool. He's been sitting for roughly a year. He sits, and now he's standing. And you run the, par the passages through the prophets. When the Lord stands, it's to come back and judge and wrath and make war. <laughs> Boom. But yet, what does he do? We know Acts 9, he doesn't pour out that. He pours out long-suffering, and he pours out uh, peace and grace and mercy. But there's a young man standing there, consenting to all of it, by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, who later will become also called Paul, Acts 13, who becomes the Apostle Paul. He'll say in 1 Timothy 1 that he goes, I wreaked havoc on the church, and I did it in, I blasphemed and persecuted, I did it in ignorance and in unbelief. So the Lord has to do what? Before he can deal with Paul on the road to Damascus, what does he have to do? Change the program, because what's the dynamic in the program? That if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, what's your eternity like? Damnation. You follow that? So back here in Mark 3, when he says that, 
By the way, Sunday in Romans 9, we're going to get into Romans 9, we're going to get two verses. Okay, maybe three if we're lucky. We'll talk more about Paul because and, 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 he talks about his, how his heaviness and sorrow of heart and why that is, okay? But the, so come Sunday morning, all right? But the thing is here is what is happening in Mark 3, the Lord says, you guys are in danger of eternal damnation because of what you're not catching, you're not getting. And uh, you need to be careful of that. So when he says here in verse 30, because they said he hath an unclean spirit, again, he just nailed them all. He just got the whole group. Now in verse 31 and following, he's going to bring in, talk about his family, his natural family, say it like that, and then we'll get into all that next time because it is really time to quit, okay? All right, dearly Father, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for the study. We thank you for the look into this. A wonderful passage here as the Lord begins to, to really lay out the nation of Israel, uh, the apostate nation, as who they are and where they stand and who they're following. In your name we pray. Amen.